Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 186, Lifting the Lost, part 4. From the earliest moment of the idea of an allied occupation of Japan, it was always clear that part of the occupation would be making somebody pay for the war. This is another area of the occupation where the shadow of World War I loomed very large. The thinking, as it went, was that the leadership had to be held accountable in Germany and in Japan in order to expose the crimes of both countries. That way, there could be no later claim that the Axis cause was actually legitimate or represented some kind of just grievance. There must not and absolutely could not be any case for the vanquished powers to claim the moral high ground. It's important for us to note, though, that the idea of one country placing the rulers of another country on trial was, before World War II, completely unprecedented. Other rulers had been punished, to be sure. Napoleon's whole exile situation would be a good example. But the idea of claiming jurisdiction over another country's government and putting those leaders on public trial was something that was fundamentally new. The whole idea raised some uncomfortable questions. After all, strictly speaking, everything both the Nazi leadership and Japanese leadership did was, strictly speaking, legal. From the German and Japanese perspectives, they were the ones who decided what the law was. So what law could they possibly be prosecuted under? Even by 1945, the final form all of this would take was an open question. In that year, the American Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, told his Soviet and British counterparts that if he had his way, the Allies, quote, would take Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo and their arch-accomplices and bring them before a drumhead court-martial, and at sunrise the following morning, there would occur an historic incident. The Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, took it even further, drawing up a list of Nazi leaders he believed should be shot summarily on capture. In the end, the day was carried by those like Secretary of War Henry Stimson, who argued that full trials, though stripped down to bare bones to avoid legal technicalities that could make them drag on forever, would still enable the Allies to claim the moral high ground by allowing defendants to speak on their own behalf. Those trials could also provide a public record of enemy atrocities. In the end, Stimson and his allies were able to convince President Truman, who convinced the other allies. But even years after the fact, there were always those who continued to believe that it would have been better to just shoot the bastards. Now, this is not a podcast about Germany, so we're not going to be talking that much about the Nuremberg Tribunal. There's plenty of good material out there about it, so if that's an interest of yours, well, go forth and read. In Asia, meanwhile, a demand for trials of some sort was part, actually, of the surrender agreement. The Potsdam Proclamation, which laid out Allied demands for Japan, included in its text the line, quote, Stern justice shall be meted out to all war criminals, including those who have visited cruelties upon our prisoners. The final schema divided potential war criminals into one of three categories, very creatively called Class A, Class B, and Class C. John Dower lays out the distinction between Class B and Class C as follows, quote, 
In formal terms, conventional atrocities or crimes against humanity more broadly defined were identified as Class B war crimes. The planning, ordering, authorization, or failure to prevent such transgressions at higher levels in the command structure were categorized as Class C war crimes, end quote. However, Dower also points out that in practice, the distinction between Class C and Class B was somewhat blurred, as distinguishing planning and authorization and command-level responsibility proved very difficult. So in practice, there were really only two categories, Class A and Class B-C. Class A war crimes, meanwhile, are where things get a bit interesting. Class A war crimes meant the commission of crimes against international peace. This was a charge leveled specifically at members of the government leadership, accusing them of waging aggressive war as well as endorsing policies of atrocity in conquered territory. Now frankly, Class B and Class C war crimes don't provide us with very much to talk about. Those trials were not held in central locations. Instead, 12 tribunals were convened by the Dutch, 11 by the British, 10 by the nationalist regime of China, Nine by Australia, five by the United States, and one each for France and the Philippines. In addition, the Soviet Union held its own trials under a separate system, and after the Chinese communists took power in 1949, they held some of their own. As you might imagine, a total of 49 different tribunals held by seven different countries means it's a little hard to make a coherent story out of those trials. All told, about 50 million separate people were put on trial, and making sense of all the different outcomes is pretty hard. Some trials were cancelled when defendants died in jail. Others were released for lack of evidence, or received death sentences that were commuted, or had to have the charges against them altered halfway through when new evidence came to light. And, of course, in China, French Indochina, and the area with the largest number of trials, the Dutch East Indies, New wars began while these trials for the Old War were still going on, which, as you might imagine, did not do much in terms of improving the quality of record-keeping. What I can tell you is that a surprisingly small number of people were actually executed in those trials. The calculated number is 920 people. That is not counting the Soviets or Chinese communists, whose trials, as you might expect, were not exactly public. Indeed, the Soviet case, which mostly involved Japanese nationals captured in Manchuria during the final weeks of the war, is interesting enough that I think it deserves its own podcast down the line. In the meantime, if you're interested, there's a great book on the whole experience called The Gods Left First. I wholeheartedly recommend it. Far more interesting for our purposes are the trials of Class A war criminals, which were convened in May 1946. In those trials, the plan was to hold the leadership accountable for Japan's wars in both China and the Pacific. Noticeably absent from the final indictment was Emperor Hirohito, to the consternation of some involved in the trial. His absence was particularly striking in light of the theory laid out by the prosecution during the case, one of an ongoing conspiracy by the Japanese government going all the way back to 1928, in which Japan's leaders planned to conquer the world. Of course, only one Japanese leader was in power all the way from 1928 to 1945, and that's Hirohito himself. 
The decision not to go after Hirohito was, well, to put it mildly, not without controversy, particularly among the other Allied powers. The Australians, as we've mentioned, were keen to see him on trial, as was a good chunk of the Chinese leadership and, of course, the Soviet Union. This gets to one of the trickiest aspects of the trial. Hypothetically, it was an international affair, with one justice from each of the 11 different allies, excepting the U.S., which got two. However, the fact that the Americans were responsible for managing Tokyo, where the occupation was taking place, combined with the fact that the chief prosecutor, Joseph Keenan, was American, meant that in practice, American concerns dominated the trial. So who actually did get indicted? Well, 29 defendants were named for the final trial, the vast majority, 19 out of 29, being former military leaders. Of the civilians, nine were former government officials, and one was a man named Okawa Shume, who had no record of government service. So why was he on trial, then? Well, Okawa was the best-known exponent of a political philosophy of Japanese exceptionalism and a theory of inevitable civilizational clashes which Japan had to win in order to survive. In other words, he was Japan's leading ultranationalist philosopher, and in the thinking of the prosecution, he represented the ideas which had driven Japan to war. Now, the star of the show was, unquestionably, former Prime Minister Tojo Hideki. Tojo had essentially run the entire war from 1941 to 1944 in his dual roles as Prime Minister and War Minister, but had been forced out of office after his failure to successfully defend the island of Saipan from American invasion. As we've talked about before on this podcast, blaming Tojo alone for what happened during the war is a little unfair. While Tojo was in charge during the Pearl Harbor attacks, the planning for those attacks was already complete. It had begun under the previous Prime Minister, Konoe Fumimaro. Besides, the Japanese Prime Ministership didn't actually come with a lot of power attached to it. In practice, the Prime Minister had little control over the rest of the cabinet, and was still answerable to a superior, the Emperor. But, in the end, the Allies needed a face to complete the trifecta of evil with Mussolini and Hitler, particularly since, thanks to a crowd of angry Milanese leftists and a Walther PPK 7.65 pistol, respectively, neither Mussolini nor Hitler were available for trial. Hirohito would be the obvious fit, but at this point it was pretty clear that MacArthur was going to protect him, so someone else had to take the fall, and Tojo made sense. And to be clear, Tojo was not blameless, and as much as anybody was actually in charge, which is kind of an open question, theoretically he was, and if that sentence sounds tortured, well, welcome to the awful system that is the Meiji Constitution. Tojo Hideki screwed up real bad. He was not a good person, nor was he morally blameless for everything that happened. Assigning him a leading role in everything, though, well, that's a bit of a stretch. Also included in the indictment were men like Togo Shigenori, who had been the foreign minister of Japan at the time of Pearl Harbor, and who eventually signed the final surrender agreement. In the photos, he's the one with the top hat. Kido Koichi, Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal and the Emperor's closest advisor, two former finance ministers, two other foreign ministers, and two former prime ministers, Koki Hirota and Hironuma Kichiro, 
as well as the former ambassadors to Germany and Italy, also went on trial. On the military side of things, meanwhile, the 19 indictments covered the vast majority of Japan's recent war and navy ministers and a good number of its army field commanders. The tribunal was also given a charter by Douglas MacArthur designed to outline the rules on which it would operate. That charter was more or less a direct lift of the one used by the Nuremberg Tribunal in Germany, and it is not without controversies of its own. In particular, the charter stated that the tribunal was not to be bound by the technical rules of evidence that operated in other courts, which, among other things, require a clear chain of possession establishing where evidence comes from, and generally exclude testimony from witnesses not available for cross-examination. Instead, Article 13 of the Tribunal's Charter read, quote, The Tribunal shall not be bound by the technical rules of evidence and shall submit all evidence which it deems to have probative value. In other words, the judges could decide, case by case, what was and was not acceptable evidence. To describe this as shady jurisprudence is, I think, pretty generous, but it's also important to note that without rules like these, there really could not have been a trial. Remember that the actual surrender announcement was made on August 15, 1945, but the actual surrender and occupation didn't begin until September 2nd. In the intervening weeks, the Japanese leadership had plenty of time to destroy incriminating paper trails, and believe me, they took full advantage. Supposedly, the smoke from the burning paper was a constant in the weeks before the Americans arrived. Then, of course, there was the sticky issue of a court which was supposed to be prosecuting these people on behalf of all humanity, but which only had members from the Allied Nations sitting on it. For example, there were no Korean justices, even though it's pretty hard to think of a place that suffered more under Japanese rule than Korea, and there were no Japanese ones, even though a contention of both wartime propaganda and the occupation government was that the Japanese people themselves were also victims of their government's aggressive militarism. The trial was initially planned to operate in two parts. The original 29 defendants would be tried, and then other Class A war criminals would go up next. However, the trials ended up outlasting even the most generous estimates. From the opening day of the tribunal on May 3, 1946, 31 months passed until the first verdicts were handed down. Over 417 days of court, 419 witnesses were called, 779 more affidavits from individuals who could not or would not attend personally were submitted, 4,336 exhibits were admitted as evidence, totaling around 30,000 pages. The complete transcript of the trial, which you can read if you have a lot of spare time, totaled 48,288 pages. All of this vastly dwarfed the scale of Nuremberg, where it took about 11 months to try 24 members of the Nazi leadership. One Japanese newspaper captured the public ennui from the length of the trials in November 1948, with an editorial that read, in part, quote, To be honest, the general public's interest focused not on the proceedings, but on the single point of just finding out what the verdicts would be, end quote. One of the trickiest aspects of the trial involved figuring out exactly what the tribunal was supposed to be looking into, what its jurisdiction was, and what the nature of the crimes it was called to investigate were. 
Article 5 of the Tribunal was supposed to settle this. It established three categories. Crimes against the peace, quote, namely the planning, preparation, initiation, or waging of a declared or undeclared war of aggression, a war in violation of international law, treaties, agreements, or assurances, or participation in a common plan of conspiracy for the accomplishment of any of the foregoing. Conventional war crimes, quote, namely violations of the laws or customs of war, and crimes against humanity, quote, namely murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, and other inhumane acts committed against any civilian population before or during the war, or persecutions on political or racial grounds, in execution of or in connection with any crime within the jurisdiction of the tribunal, whether or not in violation of the domestic law of the country were perpetrated. Leaders, organizers, instigators, and accomplices participating in the formulation or execution of a common plan or conspiracy to commit any of the foregoing crimes are responsible for all acts performed by any person in execution of such a plan, end quote. Now, that's pretty lengthy, but it seems reasonably straightforward, right? Except, for example, that the whole thing about violating agreements or assurances, well, the Soviet Union did that when it declared war on Japan in violation of the neutrality pact between the two countries. Yet it was not on trial, and there was actually a Soviet judge sitting in judgment of the Japanese, who had, let's not forget, kept their word to the Soviets and been stabbed in the back for it. Then, of course, there was that whole last bit which seems to set the precedent that if one country considers the behavior of another country immoral, that's somehow a justification for a coup against a sovereign state's government. More than a few people, including several Americans, expressed, shall we say, some skepticism about that idea. But that skepticism was not very closely interrogated. The trials just went forward. A location also had to be chosen, and the one the Americans selected, well, it had little irony to it. In a trial where almost two-thirds of the defendants were military men, the venue would be the old auditorium of the Imperial Officers Academy. The Americans, incidentally, ordered the Japanese government to retrofit the building with better lighting for the cameras, nice wood paneling, air conditioning, and central heating, to the tune of 100 million yen. Indeed, the nature of the venue was impressive enough to merit mention in Time Magazine's coverage of the early phases of the trial. Quote, Much care had gone into fitting the courtroom with dark, walnut-toned paneling, imposing daises, convenient perches for the press and motion picture cameramen. The Klieg lights suggested a Hollywood premiere. Somewhat less generously, one of the judges, the Dutch jurist Bert Rowling, commented of the trial after its conclusion that it, quote, was very much an American performance. It was like a huge-scale theatrical production. I didn't see that at the time, and I didn't see that there were more Hollywood-esque things around than there should have been. Now, to credit both Douglas MacArthur and the American authorities, some serious thought did go into avoiding the appearance of a show trial. For example the defendants were given the ability to answer charges against them, which is pretty remarkable considering the opinions in favor of summarily shooting them. Unlike the Nuremberg trials, the Tokyo Tribunal also allowed the defense to challenge tribunal's decisions, for example, on whether or not to admit a piece of evidence. 
The defendants were also issued Japanese lawyers and, at their own request, received American counsel as well from lawyers appointed a few days before the trial began. However, even this chance at defending themselves came with problems. For example, broadly speaking, there are two Western legal traditions, the common law tradition which grew out of England, and the continental tradition which can be traced back to Roman law. American law is primarily derived from common law, with the notable exception of Louisiana, which retains its heritage as a French colony, in part with a continentally influenced law system. Japanese law, however, was and is completely in the tradition of continental law. The Tokyo Tribunal operated on rules derived from common law, which Japanese lawyers were generally not familiar with, placing them at a substantial disadvantage. This was part of the reason that the defendants eventually received American lawyers. However, those same American lawyers then objected when they were not given more time before the start of the trial to prepare. After only a month on the job, six of those lawyers, including the chief American defense attorney, quit, arguing that they had not been given enough time to meet with their clients and prepare, and that as a result the trial was unfair. The rules of evidence also did not favor the defense, though it's unlikely that was by design. The lack of strict evidentiary rules allowed the prosecution, which presented its case first, to present some things that would really not pass court muster in a regular proceeding, for example, vaguely recalled descriptions of destroyed documents. After the prosecution rested, the justice decided that this approach was not viable. It allowed some pretty dubious stuff into the official record. So they ordered a change in the evidentiary rules to something called the best evidence rule. This rule holds an original document or some other form of hard evidence as superior to recollections, descriptions, or less direct copies. All told, I think it's a pretty good rule, but of course, the prosecution had got to argue its case under the old rules, and now the defense was hampered by the new ones. Again, probably not a deliberate attempt to undermine the defense, but image-wise, not the best choice. Then, of course, the entire language of the proceedings was in English, the rules were in English, the evidence was in English, the testimony was either in English or translated into English. A team of interpreters was tasked with simultaneously translating everything into Japanese for the defendants, but of course, that's a complex process that can be prone to mistakes, particularly with a language as nuanced as Japanese. Still, and this is important enough that I think it bears repeating, the Japanese defendants were allowed to answer the charges against them and to take as long as they wanted to do so before resting, which is part of the reason the trial ended up dragging so long. That was also unprecedented, by the way. Napoleon, after all, had not been given a chance to stand up in front of the Allies and defend everything he'd done. And again, as late as 1945, there were high-ranking people in the American government who just wanted to shoot all these people on sight. Considering the nature of some of the crimes committed by the Japanese armed forces in particular, the fact that they were given an opportunity to defend themselves in a public forum is kind of generous. As you might imagine, we are not going to be able to get to the substance of the trial or the verdicts today because time is very much not in our favor. Instead, I want to close today by talking in brief about the general shape of the case that each side went into the trial ready to present. 
That way we can get a general sense of the strategy of both the prosecution and the defense going into the trial. Again, the prosecution's case hinged on an argument of conspiracy, that from 1928 onwards, the Japanese leadership had engaged in a conspiracy against the peace designed to disrupt the status quo in Asia and establish Japan as the dominant power in the region. In doing so, Japan had violated both the sovereignty of their neighbors and agreements they themselves had signed, chiefly the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, in which the signatory nations renounced war as an instrument of policy, and to which Japan had affixed its name. Thus, said conspiracy was in violation of both specific agreements and the general rules governing interactions between countries. In addition, the prosecution charged that Japan had willingly violated the rules of warfare once conflict had begun, disregarding conventions that involved the treatment of prisoners and deliberately attacking civilian populations. The defense's case, meanwhile, was a bit more complex. To the question of conspiracy, the defense, led by the Japanese lawyers Takayanagi Kenzo and Kiyose Ichiro, answered that the American charge was ridiculous. There was no conspiracy. Instead, the Japanese government had engaged in a series of ad hoc responses to perceived challenges to the nation's security. Defense lawyers also attacked the authenticity of one of the chief documents used to support the prosecution, the Tanaka Memorial. This document, which supposedly dates to 1927 and which was named for the Prime Minister at the time, Tanaka Gichi, lays out a Japanese strategy for world domination, starting with Manchuria, moving into China, and from there to the rest of Asia, and eventually the world. Supposedly, the memorial represented a summary of a cabinet meeting in summer 1927, in which this grand vision of world domination was laid out. But the defense argued that it was not credible, and to give the defense their due, they were absolutely right. The Tanaka Memorial is a forgery. There was a cabinet meeting in summer 1927, but the meeting was about continuing support for the Chinese government, actually, even in the wake of rising tensions between Japan and China. The defense also took the chance to question the fundamental legitimacy of the trial itself. After all, who were the Americans to claim jurisdiction over the Japanese government? Japan was a sovereign country, and if anyone should be putting the rulers of Japan on trial, it should be the Japanese people. Besides, all of this is obviously an example of ex post facto justice, making something illegal after it's been done, and prosecuting people for it. Both of these talking points, that the prosecution had wildly overstated its case against the Japanese government, and that the trial itself was not legitimate, would later become a big part of the Japanese right-wing's attacks on the trial. If, for example, you ever make your way to the Yushukan in Tokyo, the right-wing war museum attached to Yasukuni Shrine, you'll see both points repeated in the materials presented by the museum. As for the question of war crimes, the defense argued that Japan had followed the treaties it had signed. Japan had signed the 1929 Geneva Convention on Prisoners of War, but that signature had never been ratified and thus was not officially in force, and Japan's leaders could not be held accountable for a treaty they had not signed. So broadly speaking, those are the talking points of both sides. Next week, we're going to see those strategies play out in trial before moving on to new aspects of the occupation. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. 
For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Lifting the Lost, Part 5.